I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Meren Geda. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. So this week, we're looking at President-elect Donald Trump. That's probably no surprise to our regular listeners because he's been dominating this podcast for the past few weeks and probably will continue to do so for the next few weeks, if not months. But instead of looking at Donald Trump within the US, we're looking at his relationship with China. And Donald Trump has got himself into a spot of bother recently. He's been cozying up to Taiwan, and that's seriously irritated China. In a bit, we'll talk about that. But I think it's worth looking, before we do, at Trump's policies and views towards China. Because throughout the presidential race, as I'm sure Josh will remember, he was very, very hardline on China. Our country's in deep trouble. We don't know what we're doing when it comes to devaluations and all of these countries all over the world, especially China, they're the the best, the best ever at it. What they're doing to us is a very, very sad thing. So we have to do that. We have to renegotiate our trade deals. Unless they're they're taking our jobs, they're giving incentives, they're doing things that, frankly, we don't do. So that was said during the first presidential debate, which I think was my favorite debate, because it was the one where Trump kept sniffing a lot. But he basically said to the audience that China had stolen US jobs because uh, US factories had relocated to China. And he was also angry that China had devalued its currency in order to keep its goods more competitive. And what he said during the presidential debate was very very much backed up by the policies he has on his website. So he said that if he became president, um, as he as he now is, that he would get his treasury secretary to label China a currency manipulator. He said that he would possibly go to the WTO, that's the World Trade Organization, and bring cases against China. And finally, he said that in order to remedy trade disputes with Beijing, he would go so far as to put tariffs on Chinese goods. So a very, very hardline stance. And actually, fair play to Donald, he seems to have followed through with it. So what we're talking about today is Trump's views on Taiwan, because he's said that he doesn't want to be bound by the US's one China policy on Taiwan. And he's taken a call from the president of Taiwan, which is the first time a US president-elect or president has done so since 1979. Now, the longstanding US policy on this, the one since 79, the one China policy, is a bit of a fudge, really, because Taiwan is not recognized by China. China sees it as illegitimate. Its government is, in fact, descended from the defeated government in the Chinese Civil War. China wants to bring it back under control of the overall 
small state. And that's a very kind of emotional thing for China. That's seen as going to be something of total national fulfillment. So it feels very strongly about this. Now, the US hasn't completely disavowed Taiwan, but since 1979, it no longer recognizes the Taiwanese government as the legitimate government. It recognizes the mainland government. And in 1979, it also pulled a lot of US forces out of Taiwan and allowed a defense treaty to expire. Um, so now we have this situation where you've got a bit of a fudge. The US has always tried to keep China on side. And now Trump is saying, well, I don't actually need to be bothered by that. I'm going to talk to Taiwan and I'm going to trade with Taiwan. And I'm going to work with Taiwan if I want to. And that attitude has unsurprisingly irritated Beijing. So what China has said is that it's seriously concerned about Trump's stance. And they have said that they will not be cooperating with the US if it does um, abandon the traditional one China policy. The Chinese side has noted the relevant reports and we are seriously concerned about it. The one China policy is the bedrock of Sino-US relations. If it's compromised or disrupted, the sound and steady growth of China-US relations as well as bilateral cooperation in major fields would be out of the question. So that was a spokesperson from China's uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And obviously, he's being diplomatic there. He's not going to stand up and say, you know, we vehemently disagree with Trump. This is outrageous. But, and this is interesting, Chinese newspapers, um, such as the state-sanctioned Global Times, have been pretty hard line on how they've spoken about Trump. So the Global Times wrote that he is as ignorant as a child in terms of foreign policy. They also addressed Trump and said to him, pride goes before a fall. So it's quite dramatic stuff. It's not to say that Beijing has told them to write this. But in the past, Global Times has been a mouthpiece for the government. So reading between the lines, yeah, it seems like Beijing isn't thrilled about what the president-elect has been saying. And so we wanted to get a bit of a sense of what the feeling is like over in China and also on what the kind of future prospects for any sort of renegotiation of the trading relationship there might be. So first off, we called up the man behind Newsweek's latest cover story, Enter the Donald. I'm Bill Powell. I'm the uh, Asia editor and China bureau chief for Newsweek based in uh, Shanghai. I suppose the question that, that we all have is, what are people in China saying about Donald Trump's election? You know, first of all, how, when he became president-elect, how did people take that? Were they celebrating or commiserating? Yeah, no, definitely not um, celebrating. I think they were, they, they were shocked more than anything else. I mean, shocked, I think, even more than the American people were. Um, a fair number of uh, Chinese, particularly urban, the, the more urban, educated um, Chinese who were who are sort of internationally aware, followed the election pretty closely. Frankly, people just didn't didn't sort of take the Trump phenomenon seriously here until until really after the election when they woke up or, or during the day on, on Wednesday here, when they discovered he had actually been elected. Um, they sort of viewed him as this bombastic businessman slash reality TV star um, and and didn't really think seriously about about the the possibility that that he could he could become president until until in fact he won the election do you think there's um, any sort of understanding there of why Trump might use China as an issue in the way that he has, of why he might stoke up antagonism there? Do you think they're surprised to see so much antagonism from the US or do you think there's an understanding of that? I, I think it's mixed. I think there will be uh, significant resentment if Donald singles out China as, as sort of a, a whipping boy um, going forward. I think during the campaign, people sort of tended to dismiss his his rhetoric as just, you know, kind of the things politicians say from a guy who wasn't likely to win 
anyway, now of course the you know the the, the elites and and the policymakers uh, in particular are are having to take this very seriously and have gone from trying to figure out. I mean, they, they scrambled in the immediate aftermath of the election to just you know figure out who this guy uh, is, who is advising him on on China matters. Um, should they take the the campaign rhetoric seriously or not? And I think you, you sort of had this this reaction sort of symbolized by the immediate reaction to the news that he had taken the phone call from Tsai Ing-wen, the, the Taiwanese president. The immediate reaction from China's foreign ministry was to sort of criticize um, Taiwan. And they, they, they called it a petty little trick and sort of left it at that. On the, on the Saturday and Sunday afterwards. Um, but then as it emerged that there perhaps had been more calculation um, involved on the Trump side in receiving the call, um, you've seen the, the anger and the rhetoric get stepped up. And Bill, you've written this big cover story for us. And for listeners who haven't seen the cover, you should check it out because it's really amazing. It's some sort of cartoon of a Chinese dragon punching Trump. So it's it's really cool. And the story is great. And for people who haven't read it, Bill, can you just tell us a little bit about what the article says? What are the key points in it? There is sort of a, a working assumption that if the U.S. and China get involved in a in a quote unquote trade war, that it would be disastrous, not only for, for both countries, but for the global economy. People make the analogies to 1929 and the Smoot-Hawley tariff and all of that. And there is certainly a concern and scenarios that are out there in which an all-out trade war uh, between the two countries would be disastrous. However, from the U.S. perspective, it is true that the U.S. runs massive trade deficits, which are a drag on growth. China, by far, runs the largest trade surplus bilaterally with the U.S. And historically, it has tended to be the surplus countries, and China runs chronic trade surpluses and current account surpluses. Um, those countries tend to be more vulnerable to protectionist action or to, to trade measures, um, which are designed to reduce a surplus country's surplus. The question is whether the Trump team is going to go at this with a blunderbuss or a, or a stiletto. Just uh, lastly, uh, Bill, looking at this from where we are now, from your position in China, how optimistic, I suppose, do you feel about how Trump's um, China policy is going to turn out, both for the US and for China and, and for the global economy more widely? Uh, not optimistic at all. Uh, Donald was very clear uh, during the campaign that trade and renegotiating bad trade deals uh, is at the top of, uh, of his agenda. And, and China, uh, along with Mexico, were the two most often cited countries as, as being problems. So the people who elected Donald, particularly the, the industrial uh, working class in, in, in the Midwest and the states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, are expecting him to act on that rhetoric. And I think, as we've seen during the, the transition thus far, um, Donald is not backing down um, uh, on that. So that's the view from Inside China, and I'd like to thank Bill for joining us. Now let's talk about things a little bit more generally. Let's broaden it out. Let's look at what the U.S. is saying and thinking as well. And we've got a great guest joining us here in the studio. My name is Kerry Brown. I'm the Professor of Chinese Studies and the Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London and an Associate Fellow at Chatham House London. 
And so we're here really talking about, as our listeners heard in the intro, Trump's comments recently on Taiwan. And this obviously comes in the context of months and months and months of uh, comments about China from Trump. In fact, he said the word just once or twice on the campaign trail, I think. Let's say China. 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 So just a minor issue in the campaign. And in that context, what, what kind of effect is Trump having more broadly, do we think, on relations between the two? Yes. The odd thing about the way that Trump says China is it's like the way that you get Chinese people in China learning English say it with a sort of very heavy accent on the ch. <laughs> so so uh, it's a rather sort of um, interesting thing that he says it in such an aggressive way, almost like English isn't his first language. So, uh, you know, his attitude towards China in the presidential campaign was that it was economically hawkish. And, uh, I mean, that's because China is a a protected currency. Yeah? I mean, it's not a convertible currency. So it means that China is able to not set its currency at market rates. And that means that it can enjoy quite good access to foreign markets by selling its goods cheaper. Um, now, there were reasons in the past why that was a good thing, because people could buy cheap goods from Walmart and other places. Uh, but now, of course, with lower employment and lower growth, developed markets like America in particular and Europe are not happy about this. And they want um, China to change its um, its currency policy. So there's all sorts of things that Trump talked about, uh, you know, in the economic realm, but he didn't really talk about security. The only thing he says and has said, and will probably continue to say about security, is it's expensive, and therefore that he expects partners in the Asian region to pay more for that. And China, he expects to pay, you know, for the kinds of uh, access to the American market that it has. So he's really using a very kind of business-like mentality about a pretty complicated issue. And we can go into the security aspects of it a bit later, but to stick with uh, the economy, it's the economy, stupid. I mean, one thing that people are saying is that if Trump um, continues to make overtures to Taiwan, that China could retaliate. And one way that it could retaliate is by um, hurting the US economically, um, particularly because, you know, Trump's also talked about the idea of imposing uh, tariffs on China. If that happens, if he makes good on that promise, could we see a trade war between China and the US or is that over-dramatizing it? We could see a trade war, and it's one that almost certainly America will lose. And so I don't think, you know, the whole point about engaging in these fierce fights with each other is that you've got to have the conviction that at the end of the day, you can take the pain and win. And I don't think America really can, because China has much more in the end to lose from this, so it will fight harder. I mean, that's just a sort of basic principle of any kind of negotiation. And so I, I think... The, the, the only reasonable response from both sides is an acknowledgement that any economic fight would be mutually assured destruction. I mean, whoever ends up winning, they're going to end up winning with a battlefield that's going to be very, very bloody uh, economically, of course. I'm talking economically, not militaristically. You say economy stupid, but um, you can't separate the economy from security in most issues. And with China and America, at the bottom line is that Trump is right in as much as he says that China has benefited from a global, norms-based, benign trading system massively to China's favor, and something needs to be done to rebalance that. So as long as Trump is trying to get a better deal from China into the global system, contributing more, being more open, having more access for American companies and other companies, then I think that is a rational policy. But mixing that up with security issues is, is somewhat high risk. 
Well, because you say that, that there are some rational things that could be done to possibly rebalance the relationship a little bit. I mean, are, are there some things Trump could do that would both fit his slightly combative rhetoric against China economically, but also be sensible and might get the US a better deal, might get US workers a better deal? Well, he doesn't support the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that would have been one way of giving China pressure. I can't really see how America can give China more pressure without working in partnership with others. Um, It can try and stop uh, Chinese access to the American market. And again, there'll be costs for that because then Americans will have to buy goods sourced elsewhere and they might be more expensive. Um, And he can also try and stop American investment, uh, Chinese investment or American investment into China. But they won't be straightforward. There'll always be costs and and, and benefits. You know, know, there's there's never a sort of easy trade-off. So I imagine what he's going to do is try and use an issue like Taiwan because it's the only area where you really can hurt China and China cares about it. So he might try and use that as a bargaining piece. But as Chinese media over the last couple of days has said, there isn't an appetite to bargain over this. This is not something that they're going to bargain over. So as I said earlier, it's somewhat high risk what he's doing. I think so far we've talked about this in quite a negative way, and perhaps it is. But, and I'm not about to sort of take Trump's side, but, you know, are there any positives for America in Trump embracing this more sort of hardline stance towards China? I mean, could it be beneficial? Because we know that China holds quite a lot of the U.S.'s debt. I mean, the U.S. and China have always had this very uneasy relationship. Could we see the U.S. now being lifted into a position of strength or is it all just going to end in a in a bloody metaphorical battlefield? I mean, Trump has a point. I think, you know, no one would deny that, that China has a highly advantageous position in the global economy at the moment and it's protected currency it's very protectionist uh, regulations over access to its market are often greatly to its benefit and it's time to readjust that I don't think anyone doubts that and that's not just an issue for America that's an issue for uh, Europe so there's going to be a pretty fierce um, negotiation with China but that negotiation um, is going to be a pretty sophisticated, delicate one. And mixing issues like security issues and other issues into that, well, I'm sure it will happen, but it's going to be pretty um, you know, hard to control. Um, the bottom line is that China has to open its currency to market rates and has to open its finance and services sector better to foreign companies. And it has to be a contributor more to the global order in terms of finance, in terms of kind of currency flows. It's, it's got to be a more open economy. And that's something I'm sure that China will have to do. It will want to do it incrementally. It's a question of whether it will do it quickly or slowly. Do you think Trump sort of knows what he's getting into here in some ways? Because one thing that sort of struck me reading about the China-Taiwan relationship as one example of the things he's talking about is that it's it's a pretty emotive issue for China. You know, um, the, the, the one nation policy is not just a matter of cold emotional calculation. It's also about what they believe they are as a nation or should be as a nation. Do you think Trump kind of gets the complexity of this issue? Do you think he is being strategic, is thinking about using it as a as a wedge or whatever it might be? Or do you think he's just sort of lighting on things that he's heard and kind of throwing them out there and seeing what sticks? Well, reportedly, he's a president who's never read a book. So I suspect that he is going from... He's read his own book, presumably, after the well, deal. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure his ghostwriter has. I mean, uh, I feel, you know, doing the election campaign that he showed an instinctive ability to to go for people's vulnerabilities. You know, diplomacy is about relationships, and he is now showing the same ability to go for vulnerabilities. The problem is, you know, like the poet W.B. Yeats said, you know, tread softly for you, tread on my dreams. So 
in crashing into this issue, uh, things can happen way quicker than anyone can really deal with. And this is a very emotional issue for China. Uh, it's an emotional issue for Taiwanese too. And just coming in and you know saying we're going to unilaterally sort of change things will get people wound up. And when people get wound up, uh, they aren't easy to control what they do. So I, I think um, the other problem is that it doesn't seem that he at the moment has particularly good advisors around him. And it seems from my background, I was a diplomat before I was an academic and with politicians, you've got to have officials around them that kind of get their trust and work with them. And at the moment, it doesn't seem like he has very trusting relations with anyone. I mean, not even with the intelligence community. So it's really hard to know how he's going to get good advice on this issue, which is a complicated issue and is one which China is willing, has been willing to go to war on in the past and has a law from 2005, the anti-succession law, which says that if Taiwan declares independence, they will go to war. They're legally obliged to go to war over it. I mean, you know, this doesn't, why negotiate with a partner that, that doesn't have any space to negotiate with you? It's, it doesn't make, make, make sense even in business. And we're talking about Trump very much as though he's charged into this hugely emotive issue with his own emotional rhetoric saying, I'm going to get tough on China. I'm going to bring jobs back to the US. I think it's clear that he's probably not going to be able to follow through on all of those promises. But, and again, I'm not taking Trump's side, although I'm aware how I'm starting to sound in this podcast. Are there any benefits to getting cozy with Taiwan? Can Taiwan in any way benefit the US? Or is it too small of a, of a player, really, to, to help them? It's a significant economy. I mean, it's 23 million people per capita GDP, which is high. Uh, you know, one of the world's best producers of semiconductors. I mean, it's an important economy. And it's also really important that democracies show solidarity for a democracy which is under threat from a non-democratic entity. So from that point of view, this is a big red line. And America certainly, under the Taiwan Relations Act from 1979, does have a treaty commitment or a treaty-type commitment to looking after the security of Taiwan should it be threatened. For sure, raising this issue and also saying that it is, on the surface, a really kind of illogical policy. Why do we have this place which has its own currency and its own flag and its own military and its own, you know, stock exchange. We don't call it a country. I mean, anywhere else you'd say that was a country. Taiwan is the big exception. So why do we still have that? So I think to raise these issues is valid. Um, I don't think raising them in this way, especially because the Xi Jinping leadership in Beijing are very nationalistic too, um, is going to mean that you can resolve the fundamental issue, which is the final status of Taiwan. And another kind of regional issue related to China as well that people talked about during the campaign, have talked about a bit recently, is China's relationship with North Korea. Um, there's a sense that, well, we know that North Korea poses a threat. There's a sense that perhaps uh, American intelligence uh, knows that they're going to pose a greater threat and that China's going to be central to kind of managing that relationship. Trump sort of mentioned this once or twice during the campaign. He said some stuff about China needs to do more to tackle North Korea. But how is all the stuff that we've been talking about going to play into this? And how would the fact that America needs China on its side on that front, um, how is that going to affect the other stuff that we've been talking about? So the only treaty alliance that China really has with anyone is with North Korea from I think the 1950s. And in 1950, when the People's Republic was established, there was a moment when it could have reunified with Taiwan. You know, it had the ability, it could have invaded there and then. And the moment when it thought about this, the North Koreans under Kim Il-sung declared war and it had to then pile into that issue. So in a sense, North Korea has always been the spoiler. It's always really uh, been a problem for China. 
Trump is probably right in saying uh, China is the only one that can deal with North Korea because it's the biggest investor, it's the biggest energy supplier, something like 90% of the energy going there. Why, why in a far the biggest trading partner? So to be honest, if, if China was to turn off the taps, North Korea would collapse tomorrow probably. But then it doesn't want – China doesn't want a, a kind of Korean peninsula, which is probably under – the control of the Americans, you know, I mean, it's very, very worried about this instability. So it sort of tries for the status quo. But North Korea is always plotting its way into, you know, disrupting things. Most American presidents is greeted with a nasty surprise. Um, it did one of its nuclear tests, I think, in 2008 when Obama became president. So I think we can expect North Korea to do something this time. And whether, you know, this is one of the issues, not really Taiwan, but North Korea is really the issue where you get a kind of approach that will, well, it's zero sum. I mean, the North Koreans have nothing to lose. So they are willing to kind of provoke and push. And for someone like Trump, who obviously is very provocable, this could be absolutely incendiary. And so we're sort of nearing the end of the time here. But just to wrap up to ask a very simple question, well, Actually, quite a complicated question, but it's going to sound simple. Um, who has the more kind of space here? Who has the stronger hand? Who needs the other more, America or China, as we're heading into these uh, potential renegotiations of that kind of relationship? So to give you a very classical sort of politician's answer, I mean, I think they both need each other. And it's like this caustic, difficult marriage where neither can leave the other, and yet they're both yelling at each other all the time. So rather than uh, having you know, Trump sort of trying to up the ante. I think they need a marriage guidance counsellor, um, to, to be absolutely honest. And it's hard to see at the moment where that kind of counsel will come from. I can't see Russia being particularly interested in helping. Most of the partners will just want to, in fact, have this kind of relationship between America and China as, as being not great because it suits people. But in fact, uh, the uh, you know, the best kind of relationship would be a much more harmonious one uh, it's hard to say what Trump will do when he actually gets in. He's said a lot that's contradictory. So we assume after a few months, he'll realize just how high the stakes are and that this isn't, you know, like a version. This isn't like a kind of episode of The Apprentice. Um, it's really, really uh, worrying. Uh, the Chinese sort of mentality, I think, in Beijing is that they want more dominance over their region. They feel that's their right. And they're not going to, I think they're going to see Trump as an opportunity eventually to have a weakened and more isolationist America and one where they can kind of fill in particular spaces that America no longer wants. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you to everyone who listened. Just a reminder that you can listen to us every week. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. Don't forget to subscribe to us and rate us. We would so appreciate that. If you can't wait till next week, you can visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.